0: Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots. But AI is more than a novelty. And it's possible that your business could benefit from AI integration. SAP Business AI can help your business innovate, whether it's supply chain, finance, human resources, sales and marketing, even a generative AI co-pilot. SAP Business AI can offer the solutions you've only dreamt of. Revolutionary technology, real world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com/slash AI.
1: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called Writer's Block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds thanks to AI.
2: Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction.
1: Now I can say bye-bye to Writer's Block.
2: Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at Canva.com, designed for work.
3: As long as the world has been dealing with China as a potential rising power, there's been concerns that the U.S. and China could get wrapped up in a replication of what happened for most of the 20th century, that is, a devastating Cold War that constantly risked yet another world war and global conflagration. Well, guess what? People are now worrying that the coronavirus and China's behavior during it and the U.S. response has kicked off the beginning of that long, dreaded new Cold War. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we are going to talk about the way the coronavirus has restructured U.S.-China relations, whether or not We are actually in a Cold War with China, what it would look like for the U.S. and China to be a Cold War, and what the significance of of rising hostilities between these two countries are. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Let's go. You know, when we were were talking about this episode idea, I thought this was pretty interesting. Alex, you suggested it. What made you think about the U.S. and China as being engaged in a Cold War? Like, what, What brought this topic to mind for you?
4: Well, other than the thousands of stories on it, uh, no, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true.
3: There's been a little bit too much media coverage on the topic, which is something I want to talk about later, but... Agreed. Um,
4: it is a bit overwrought, and I and I will mention my questions with the framing in a bit, but I think it's important to know that it, at a time such as this with the coronavirus, one would hope that the two big powers in the world would find ways to work together to figure all this out. They are scientific powers, they are, of course, military and economic powers... And so if the world is going to get out of this mess, um, you're probably also going to want two of the three most populous countries with all these resources to make it work. But they're not. Um, now, part of this is longstanding trends. Of course, you have China gaining economic clout at somewhat at the expense of the United States. China's military power has been rising for a bit. We have the trade war this year. They're at each other's throats in terms of interests in Asia and elsewhere. So that's sort of the broader context. But in this case, what you have is basically a blame game. And we've done an episode on this. There was a sort of a blame game at the beginning of like, who's responsible for the coronavirus? Are America's woes, China's fault at all? And now what we're seeing is that they are basically it's gone beyond a blame game to like, no, 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 the United States is the force for good. We're doing our best. You basically attacked us. And it's this is all your fault, period where you have China going, well, this is the United States deflecting blame for their messed up coronavirus response, and we're going to retaliate in multiple different ways. And so you now have the two powers at each other's throats. You have them uh, rhetorically and in some ways economically and, and in one small way militarily. And so this is now a time, it seems, where If you were ever going to have sort of a launch point of a long ideological geopolitical struggle, this would probably be it.
5: I think there are a few things here. One, you're absolutely right in terms of the blame game and what's going on. If we're going to talk about Cold War and what the U.S.-China relationship looks like in the context of a Cold War, I think we need to first kind of define our terms, right? So we have the concept of like a Cold War anyone can be in this, right? It, we're not talking about the Cold War. So if you're talking about the concept of a Cold War, it's basically the opposite of a hot war, right? So there's not direct military fighting, shooting at each other, bombing each other, but it's basically everything up to that point. So fighting with you know economic sanctions, rhetoric, political intrigue, and and everything basically up to direct military confrontation. But it's, it's two countries that are in a very hostile adversarial position. Under that definition, I think there's really no question that we're in a U.S.-China Cold War. Now, if you're talking about the Cold War, and if you're trying to compare the situation between the U.S. and China to the Cold War paradigm that we have between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, that's where I think the model really breaks down. Uh, I think there are a lot of similarities. You know, Alex, you laid them out very well. But I think there are also a ton of differences between that context. Obviously, that lasted for decades. So we're right now in, you know, if we're talking about this just being at the beginning, we don't know what, what that would play out. But primarily just the fact that the U.S. and China are so deeply intertwined economically in terms of trade, uh, in terms of the trade relationship, in terms of just basic contacts. It just dwarfs anything that the U.S. and the Soviet Union ever had, um, even at the the height of when the Soviet Union kind of collapsed and and U.S. trade and and relations with the Soviet Union really started to, to build back up. Um, there's nothing compared to the amount of trade relationship that we have. So in terms of having like, two opposing superpowers with very opposed ideological constructs that that drive them. I think that very much fits the Cold War paradigm of, of the U.S. and the Soviet Union. But I think in terms of a lot of our interconnectedness and a lot of our, our actual relations and the history of our relations, I think it's way more complicated than that. So that's just in terms of like defining terms. I, I want us to be kind of clear on what we're actually talking about here.
3: Yeah, no, I think you can push that that point a little bit further, Jen, because the analogy to the actual Cold War, the thing that everybody agrees was the only Cold War, is really useful here. It, the only in the sense of that's where the term came yeah, from. Yeah, if you Google right? the Cold so, War,
5: that's the one that's gonna come up.
3: <laughs> right. And and one of the defining features of the Cold War was not abstract ideological competition, right? You're you're right that it's ideological competition, but it was it was done like there was actual competing in the real world, not oh, just sure. sending out press releases, right? Like there are the, the One of the defining features of the Cold War era was a constant back and forth of attempting to overthrow governments that were friendly to one side, uh, prop up the ones that were friendly to yours, generally a sense that throughout the world, every competition between different political factions could potentially be read into the broader geopolitical schema of and, U.S. And was read in that Soviet way. Yeah. Right, it was. They, the two powers basically decided that whether or not you want to be part of this paradigm— you're going to be, which yeah. is part of what led to the rise of the non-aligned movement in the Cold War that's not really relevant to what we're talking about right now. But setting setting aside that particular point, it's striking to me that that is not a feature of current U.S.-China competition. It is true they both have friendly regimes and less friendly regimes that they support and don't support, but generally it's understood around the world that China is not going around trying to topple the government of Japan. Uh, right, because it's a friendly U.S. government that's right in its borders and could potentially be a serious security concern for China. It's it, it, the there's no there's no sense of parity also between these two countries, right? With the U.S. and Soviet Union, there was always a sense of, of bipolarity of there being two major powers in the world. And now it's it's obvious that the U.S. has a world striding military and superior capabilities, and China militarily is primarily a regional power. They don't have the global power projection capacities the U.S. has. They don't have the global network of alliances the United States Mm -hmm. has. There's no effort to globalize the conflict in a direct way. There are, of course, efforts by China to expand its influence globally. I'm not saying that's not real, but it's very, very different from Cold War direct competition over the future of governments in different places. So I,
4: I would agree with that last point. I think it's in, in the Cold War, the, you know, not the, the Cold War, um, what you really had was those two nations fighting for control or basically trying to get sides. By the way, there's an un, there was a uh, unintentional pun that I loved read in uh, when we were talking about the Cold War earlier. Um, but anyway... <laughs> Yeah, but in this case, in the China-U.S. case, there's not really like a all right. The U.S. wants like Vietnam, and China wants you know like they're not trying to split up the globe that way. That's a very important distinction in this. Um, in fact, countries don't really want to choose because they've both countries are great markets. Both countries provide services. Both countries provide all other kinds of things. Um, right, that speaks
3: to Jen's point earlier about the the, vi- the vital nature of economic interconnection and changing per, the paradigm. Per, precisely.
4: So I'm, my my point is, I agree with with this on the just the China military bit. I will push back just a little bit. Is America's military stronger overall? No question. But could the United States beat China in a war? That's actually completely still up in the air because China's built its military almost exclusively to defend against the United States. It has the world's only ballistic missile basically designed to go after aircraft carriers. They're the first, I should say, the DF-21. And it's building up a military that, like, by 2050, is supposed to be almost on par with the United States's and, and basically war game after war game after war game China ends up coming out on top. It's able to repel American forces. So no, like, now could China now use this, the forces that it has to control sea lanes and, and do a lot of the power projection stuff that the United States does? Not all over the place, but it does that quite well in its region. So with that, I agree with you, Zach. But I think this the part of the reason there is this fear about China is that if they actually came to blows, it would not be... Um, and no one said it would be an easy victory, but it would also not be a guaranteed American win. Um, right. In fact, Sorry, I, yeah.
3: I think you're, you're pointing to an important distinction here, right? Because what you're describing is broadly, like in, in military terms, they like to use the language A2AD, which is like area denial. You don't, you want to keep people out of this area and maintain control over it. And that's a lot of the fear about China centers around a conflict in East Asia. The point I was making was, was a little narrower. It was they don't have a blue water navy like the U.S. does, right? They don't have bases around the world in the way the United States says. It's its about power projection and whether or not we can speak of there as being a global Cold War in a way right. that was parallel to the U.S.-Soviet one, uh, which I, and I think that that's a huge and fundamental difference, right? There's theres no fear about China deploying nuclear missiles in Cuba, for example. It's, it's not like that yet. No, I'm kidding.
4: <laughs>
5: no. I, and Zach, I think your point about alliances is critical there. If you look at the Cold War the US and the Soviets, you had you had the NATO bloc and and you know, and then you had the Warsaw Pact, right? Like you had the Eastern Bloc and the Western Bloc, essentially. Um, and, and that wasn't just the United States, right? You, it was NATO. Um, and so when you put that together, you still have NATO. Uh China is not a part of NATO, uh, you may remember. Um, and Yet. You know, so right. <laughs> and so, you know, NATO still exists. Um, and if you put it that way and look at, we've talked a million times on the show about the strength of NATO and wither NATO, but as it stands, NATO is still a functioning body and a alliance of militaries that if pressed, if you want to compare China militarily to the U.S., I think you have to take into account at least a couple of allies of the United States. And I don't see a ton of allies coming to China's aid, uh, especially in the region. So I, I think there's definitely that. You know, the ideological thing, I think, is important, though. So when I was in China uh, uh, on a press junket a couple of years back, and it, it was basically a U.S.-China kind of relations, trying to get into know each other and getting Americans to have a better view of China. But the whole time, everyone we spoke to, from professors at Chinese universities to people in the Chinese foreign ministry to private businesses— which in China are not totally private, but everyone was talking about this kind of Chinese model of democracy, right? Democracy with Chinese characteristics is how they like to put it. And they over and over are pushing that, look, our version of democracy, which is not democracy, by the way, you know, it's much more stable, right? We can get things done. Issues with climate change and environmental degradation, right? Well, when you have an authoritarian country, you can get stuff done easier. Uh, They kept pointing to the election of Donald Trump It was right after Trump was elected, and they were saying, look, that would never happen here, that kind of crazy person. You would never elect somebody like that. Uh, And they would say that, like, point blank. That's why democracy is messy, and it's not the best system, so maybe you should do this. So there is a a very clear ideological push behind China. They are trying to export their model uh, and their vision of democracy, not in the same way in terms of, like, overthrowing governments and installing communist regimes in I don't know Afghanistan or you know building this global alliance of like-minded you know communist countries they're not doing that but they there is a fundamental difference in the two underlying ideological models of what the United States represents and what China represents and China is very much trying to export that vision
3: yeah uh it's it, it's it's interesting to to hear how you read that right because I think there are a lot of different ways to think about China's exporting of its ideas and attempts to be a global model for the world, right? Because one way to read it is an attempt to engage in ideological competition to get other countries to like adopt the quote unquote China model. Another way to read it is as a, a hedging against the US attempt to export liberal democracy, which is something that we claim to love to do all the time, right? A way of trying to constitute an ideological framework That is not just about making other countries like China, but about giving a way and in a language for non-liberal countries to unite around or or work together on some kind of opposed to the U.S.-led vision of the world order type thing, right? A lot of Chinese state propaganda and and I think sincerely held ideology, at least according to some of the the books I've read on the topic, by the Chinese leadership is is a sense that heavy emphasis – on self-determination and lack of external interference and, and, and sovereignty, right? That the Chinese leadership, out of its experience with colonialism, Western interference, and Japanese invasions, has come to believe very strongly that countries should be allowed to do what they want inside their borders, and that if they want to take their Muslim population and put them into concentration camps, nobody should be able to tell them not to do that, But the point is, China believes in this absolute power of states to do what they want inside their borders. And that is a message that resonates with a lot of different authoritarian and even non-authoritarian post-colonial states. And I think that that gives them a stronger, in some ways, ideological framework because it allows them to uh, rally other countries to their banner on certain issues by saying, look, it's not that you have to agree with us, it's just you have to agree that you want the West to butt out. At the same time, it's not exactly an ideological framework that could give you a new Warsaw Pact, you know, right? Like, it's not, we're going to replace all the democracies with some vague, undefined sovereignty notion. It's just a, a very useful strategic framework for galvanizing international cooperation on your behalf.
4: And that, it's been useful for the U.S. too. I mean, this administration has purposefully built this narrative around the U.S.-China relationship. I mean, I remember my, uh, Vice President Mike Pence's speech at the Hudson Institute, a think tank in D.C., in which his language was extremely clear that a Cold War was the way the U.S. viewed uh, China, that basically it was like the U.S. will get China to abide by trade deals and they're going to have to start abiding by international laws and norms. And like a lot of that language is kind of somewhat borrowed from previous administrations who always wanted to make China the quote-unquote responsible stakeholder in the world, in effect, to try to make China just like the United States and, and abide by international norms. But the way the Trump administration framed it was so much more confrontational and systemic and ideological. And, and just to be clear, this and, was
5: before the coronavirus.
4: Yeah, sorry, this was, this was quite before. Yeah, this was last year, I believe yeah. now. So, um, and and we'll link to the speech in the show notes. But I remember listening to it and I I wrote a piece about it and we were having discussions inside the newsroom at the time of like, did Mike Pence kind of declare a
5: Cold War just now? One, two, three, um, four, I declare a Cold War. Yeah, and I was
3: thinking it was like Michael Scott declaring
4: bankruptcy.
5: (laughs) I
3: (laughs) declare Cold
5: War!
3: But like, and I mean this
4: sincerely, that was a decent encapsulation of the speech. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so... This has kind of been a narrative that this administration has cultivated, or at least has not tried to stop. Of course, the trade war and all that feeds into it, but the coronavirus by far is is the greatest manifestation of this. Because, granted, at the beginning, and I think this should not be set aside, Trump was praising China's response at the beginning. You might remember that he was like Xi Jinping's got this handled, and I'm, you know, they're doing well, and like that's why we don't really have to deal with it. The second. America's response looked really weak and bad, then it was like, oh, well, the Chinese did not tell us in time. And uh, obviously they could have done more. And granted, the Chinese could have done more. In fact, the WHO also should have, and we've talked about this, could have done more with China. But, like, China's malfeasance here um, in delaying their response and also telling the world did not force the United States to have a bad response, right? America's bad response is America's bad response, period, end of story. So now this has been a scapegoating and it's hard, especially for this administration, being what it is, and also in an election year, to walk that back. They can't kind of say this isn't China's fault anymore. And so I don't really see how both sides get out. And so between sort of the longer context of this administration... And what this means both politically and in terms of, like, just Trump's own ego, I feel like we're just going to be locked in this really negative cycle for a long time.
3: Well, you say that, right? But Trump has flip-flopped on China more than possibly any other issue throughout his presidency, right? He's constantly talking about how nice his relationship is with Xi Jinping and how they're friends and how they're working out their problems. And then all of a sudden, it's back to, like, campaign-style China is responsible for whatever's going wrong in the world, it, it seems that in an administration where strategic doctrine is malleable, we aren't necessarily locked in anything, right? The, the president has this ability, this choice to, to rewrite what the, the script through which his administration treats and discusses China, and he does it—I don't know if that random is right, but it, it seems to be certainly not through any kind of consistent strategic lens— Right, or, or, or doctrine. Though there is obviously a lot of China hawkery right now, I could imagine that changing uh, because it's changed for many, many times throughout the administration. And who knows, maybe there'll be some development with coronavirus that will cause it to change. I, I, just, I, I feel like things are a lot more unpredictable than, than you just suggested there.
5: One of the things that when you look at Trump's engagement with China or, you know, approach to China, confrontation with China, however you want to phrase it, um, it's very similar to his approach toward, you know, a lot of countries, which is, I'm going to be super adversarial towards you uh, until you do what I say, or you at least make it look like you're doing what I say. So he launched the trade war with China. Uh, It lasted for several years. And then eventually they came to what is basically the first phase of a trade agreement. Now, a lot of experts looked at it and said, China's basically just giving a few things here and there. Yes, they're giving on some elements, but for the most part, a lot of this is probably going to be just fluff, essentially, to kind of ameliorate some of Trump's concerns and make it look like they gave up a lot where, you know, the big stuff they're really not going to move on or, you know, they're not going to put in implementation measures that actually make this real. And I think that's where the Trump administration, Trump himself, is running into to trouble with this paradigm that we have with the coronavirus. Because in this respect, China can't really look like it's it's giving, admitting it's wrong. Or, you know, there's not a lot it can do. It can say, look, we're working really hard now. We're trying really hard to make a vaccine and to send supplies elsewhere. But the original sin of the virus still exists. And, you know, there was a, a report that came out a couple weeks ago that was leaked from, It's an internal Chinese military intelligence report, basically said that anti-China sentiment around the world is rising to a level unseen since Tiananmen Square, which is pretty remarkable. And it was basically saying, like, this is a problem for us. <laughs> like, the, the world is really mad and we need to figure out what to do about this. So. China is is very much on the defensive right now, and it's not in a position to look weak and to say, like, look, we are kowtowing to Trump. So that's why instead you're seeing this very, very confrontational pose from China. If you look at just the Global Times, uh, for example, which is a Chinese state-influenced uh, media outlet, and you can follow their Twitter account, and if you just look at their last few tweets, just like you can just scan it's remarkable the narrative that's coming out one in one they actually uh blame the United States for AIDS and say that it started there so why don't you look at at the United States for they unleashed AIDS on everyone which is definitely not the case well they kind of have a
3: point Reagan did spend many many years ignoring the AIDS crisis because it afflicted gay people yeah like, but that, if, that is that is true
5: <laughs> yeah that's definitely not what they're saying they're saying AIDS originated in the United States which is Factually untrue. Uh, (laughs) So there's that. But it's not just that. They're saying, you know, you need to look at Fort Detrick in Maryland. It's also a bio lab. And maybe the the virus came from there and it didn't come from Wuhan. And I know you, are, but what am I? It's very childish and it's very basic, but it's a very effective, at least in their mind, strategy to, to push back hardcore. Now, if you're like a rational person with access to a lot of information and a wide variety of information, you see that and you're like, okay, that's not accurate, like that's, but if you, you know, if you're in China or if you're in a whole lot of other countries that, do, that don't have necessarily the most robust media or your access to media is limited or restricted by the government, right, that narrative is useful. Uh, and it's it's believable if you already have a tendency to, to dislike the United States. So the point is that China is really lashing out hard. And I think that means that The paradigm of Trump trying to get concessions from a country saying like, yeah, I'll be really aggressive toward Iran, but like he totally would make a deal with them like tomorrow if he could, you know, that's my thought. Um, But I think he's running up against the fact that China is not in a position right now where they want to look conciliatory and they are fighting back tooth and claw. And, uh, you know, that puts us again back to that Cold War footing.
4: So just to quickly piggyback off Jen's point, which I think is really important, is like I, when I did a piece on sort of how China is, is leveraging this moment, um, one of the things that stuck out to me was experts said what China's doing, which is very new, is um, using Russia's like online cyber playbook, in which what China used to do in its propaganda is just kind of take actual facts and at least give its side of the story really you know, aggressively and try to at least get its info out there as much as it could. What it's doing now and, and what it borrowed from Russia is Like, putting out its own lies, kind of saying, no, the U.S. is responsible. They're the one that did the coronavirus. Um, Putting out disinformation and misinformation and, like, trying to repeat and, and, and muddy the waters. Flood the zone. This is, yeah, flood the zone. This is how new it is. And this is how important it is to China to the point now that, like, we're in this space where even in the online realm, we're fighting over truth with China. And that's never really a good place to be.
3: We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to pick up this uh, frame of the country's choices, and or lack thereof, after coronavirus. Because uh, I get to use my favorite phrase here, which is socially constructed. We'll be right back.
0: Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots. But AI is more than a novelty. And it's possible that your business could benefit from AI integration. SAP Business AI can help your business innovate, whether it's supply chain, finance, human resources, sales and marketing, even a generative AI co-pilot. SAP Business AI can offer the solutions you've only dreamt of. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI.
1: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night.
3: Welcome back, worldly listeners. We've been talking about the US-China relationship. Now I left you on a bit of what I think would only be a cliffhanger for worldly listeners, <laughs> which is throwing out the phrase socially constructed and, and letting you think what you might when you might think of it. Um my thought here, honestly, is that people talk in international relations about these sorts of things, cold wars, conflicts between states as being determined by the structural nature of International politics or by the the nature of these two countries' history, past, whatever. I think here, though, a lot of the, the reasons that we're speaking about a Cold War have to do not just with the coronavirus but also with choices made by the leadership because that's not… The way that we've thought about the U.S.-China relationship in the Obama administration, uh, that's not to say the U.S. is the only party at fault here. Uh, quite the opposite, I think. It's that in the past few years, Xi Jinping has gotten increasingly aggressive internationally and authoritarian at home. But it strikes me that neither the U.S. nor the China stances that we've currently seen are, are set in stone. They're decisions made by individual leaderships. Uh, and by political parties in power and and higher-level factions, and that these could change uh, depending on transitions in leadership or even just changing in the thinking among the top leaders in these two countries. Like, we're not locked in a Cold War. It's a choice that our governments and the respective two countries are making. I think that's true.
4: There's no question about that. I mean, if Trump tomorrow decided to say— China's America's best friend and China agreed, then we'd be fine, right? Regardless of sort of the status of world politics. That said, history is replete with examples of like the second, you know, the, the top two powers in the world kind of going at it, especially when one rises. Oh, are you, th- the, the you going to Thucydides I'm not, trap me, bro. Yeah, I'm going to say. Yeah, if, I was I'm, about to
3: say, if he, if he says Thucydides trap, he's off the podcast.
4: No, no, no. I mean, look, there's tons of limitations to Thucydides trap, um, which I will, uh, the, the small explanation here is if you've ever read... Um, Thucydides is uh, the Peloponnesian Wars. Blah 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 blah. Sparta, Athens. If you've seen 300, you basically figured it out. Um, so <laughs> that is no, not true. That's not true. No, but uh, <laughs> rising the whole, power the whole challenges
5: the dominant power, and it creates the con- the the situation for war, the context for war. Right.
4: So 300. Um, <laughs> that's no, not kidding. what happened in I'm, 300. It's about a Persian invasion. This is all wrong. I, I know. I'm just. It's just fun. It's to all say. airbrush. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, like so I could yeah, I could look, that has a massive limitations, but there are examples, I mean tons of examples of, of this being true where the the two most kind of powerful actors in a region or in the world kind of go at each other. And so that does not mean that China and the US are destined for that, um, which is the number one big flaw in this reasoning. But and in fact, I may be even bolstering your point to a bit a bit, Zach, because the, there this sort of narrative exists, right? That n- number two and number one go at it. And so this could be leading and influencing some sort of analysis of this issue. Uh, so it was not; it's not surprising to me, and in fact, uh, it was somewhat, oh, I think, always predetermined that we would get to this kind of moment uh, with China and the U.S. But accelerated by the coronavirus, and in fact, which makes me sad is this is precisely the moment when like both countries should have realized eh, we should maybe put this negative feelings towards each other on pause this is the time where we actually need to help each other out. But it does not look like we're heading that direction.
5: So, on the Thucydides trap issue, when you say, you know, this, this narrative might be driving things, it absolutely is. Uh, again, when I was in China interviewing all sorts of people, it came up so many times that I just started putting, like, writing in my notes, like, Thucydides trap with, like, an eye roll. Because everybody brings this up. But China's, you know, the kind of perspective, if I can say that, with everyone I talked to, was Alex's point was, this doesn't have to be conflict, right? We can all get along. And that's essentially what China was kind of trying to push for a very long time um, internationally, this narrative that we're not here to challenge the United States and take you down. We're here to coexist. But when you pair that with the actual actions of what China's doing, you see somewhat of the lie in, in that framing uh, and one big thing I think you know is talking about Belt and Road. So uh, the quick kind of quick and dirty on Belt and Road is it's this massive economic infrastructure slash political project that China has launched to try to uh, recreate the old former Silk Road and basically build economic ties and infrastructure uh, and trade ties all across Asia all the way into Europe extending China's sphere of influence, not in a political sense, you know, when we're talking about that Cold War paradigm of the U.S. and the Soviet Union, but in the economic sphere. And they're working very hard to to develop infrastructure ties, to develop economic ties with countries to offer, you know, loans and infrastructure projects that end up trapping countries that need help with infrastructure but don't have a lot of money in these kind of, like, debt trap, where they're now, like, beholden to China and all of this debt, they have all this infrastructure— and they rely on China for a lot of their products. And so China is trying to kind of develop this economic challenge to the United States while, you know, saying all the time, well, you know, we're, we're, we're not so bad. Our former intern, Lindsay Maislind, uh, did a great piece a few years back on how the Chinese government is putting out rap videos in English to try to, on YouTube, to try to kind of spread propaganda. And one is one of my favorites. The main hook is that the red dragon ain't no evil. It's a peaceful place. So they're literally putting out propaganda. It's terrible. That's I don't really know bad. who that's influencing. Really bad. It was a cartoon. It was amazing. But you know, they're really trying to put out this like, no, no, no. We're we're not we're not aggressive. We're not a rising power. This Thucydides trap doesn't have to be a thing. And meanwhile, they are extending their economic power all across. Asia, and in Europe, and actively trying to challenge U.S. dominance in those areas, in particular in internet infrastructure and 5G, uh, Huawei, and trying to have technological dominance uh, over the market. So they are very much acting in contrary to their to their rhetoric.
3: I, I think, Jen, this speaks to a point that you were making earlier, though, which is about the, the entire structure of global politics being quite different now than it was during the Cold War in a way that significantly influences how competition plays out between these two countries. So when you're describing like competition over market share when it comes to the expansion of 5G, I'm comparing that to, you know, I don't know, funding the funding the Contras or putting nuclear missiles in Cuba. And I'm like, well, this is a lot nicer. Right, and right. It's, that that's meaningful, not just in a in a sort of facile sense, but in a deeper one, because China doesn't seem to have an interest in profoundly transforming the rules of the capitalist game or economic interchange between these countries, or uh, even in in shutting off global trade as it exists right now, right? They, in fact, benefit from it substantially. Uh, they like to cheat in it. That's a separate conversation, but— yeah.
5: Not it, compared it, to the Soviet Union in, like, an actual Marxist revolution sense. Right. It's, it's <laughs> right. China is playing
3: within rules of the game that the U.S. set up, and it's not challenging them. It's trying to do better and outcompete the U.S. within the context of those rules. And you can say that in the political sphere, too. China hasn't quit the United Nations— it's not working to dismantle the international, uh, global political, like sort of multilateral alphabet soup of NGO organizations. In fact, a lot of U.S.-China competition. This is we've seen this during the coronavirus stuff has played out in terms of influence in those organizations, right? Like the U.S. being mad at the World Health Organization, where China is gaining influence, and partially being mad at it because China is gaining some degree of influence in the World Health Organization, right? It's it is a competition within the bounds of a framework that was designed to prevent uh, great power competition from going hot, right? Like, that that was the point of the post-World War II infrastructure, which has since been expanded and built upon, and the context and the contours through which this is happening. And that, that puts a significant break on any kind of push towards a more— there's no good way to put this. Right? Hotter Cold War, more violent Cold War. I don't know. It's not a good phrase because the Cold War. M- mild are, War, yeah. mild War. Yeah, lukewarm War, uh, burner on simmer War. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> it, it's cool War. Yeah, cool. cool war. It's it's just it's um, it's striking to me not only that this is how how this is playing out. The China is much less um, revolutionary than it might seem from the way we've been talking about it. But also that that gives the U.S. a lot of structural advantages in this competition because we set up these organizations and we did so uh, in ways that give us significant built-in advantages. Um, There are are lots of different ways in which the United States has privileged itself and its allies in these institutions and that constrains China's ability to serve as a a power looking to – Overthrow all of these, <laughs> or reassert itself, or create a new world order, if it wants to continue getting the benefits of the system.
5: Alex, you've been making faces while Zach was talking, so I want to hear not your a fa- uh, hear your take.
3: No,
4: no, no, not not faces. I I, I have weird facial tics, but uh, <laughs> I I I just I agree with eighty nine point nine percent of that. the The part that I don't is. Like, in the case where some rules don't work out for China, if it's not getting the benefits it feels, it makes its own institutions. And at least sort of the the operating system within, um, you know, these institutions that the U.S. helped build or did build is somewhat of reciprocity uh, and, in fact, some sort of mutual help in the sense that just because the United States gives X thing to a country, it doesn't necessarily expect sort of the exact same thing back. Whereas China is uses this sort this system in order to kind of gain its own benefit um, in order to maximize its own advantage continuously. So if it gives you know ten dollars, you know whatever to a country it expects 10 and if not more back. Uh, I think we talked in an earlier episode about how and, and I wrote in a piece that effectively, like in, in the case with China's relationships with a lot of African countries right now during the coronavirus, but when they are asking for aid, and some sort of financial help, China's like, okay, fine, you can get it. But then we basically have to own all your mines. <laughs> and I just don't imagine the United States doing that. And so the system that China's trying to create in the moment is one in which, like, if you want it to be sort of your main partner, you have to be somewhat subservient to it. And you have to really be, you know, willing to give up a bit of your sovereignty to, or sovereignty is too strong, but a lot of your, you know, most basic needs to it. The United States has done a lot of bad things and a lot of that might shadow it, but that's not its main operating goal. You know, China is not putting missiles in Cuba or, you know, trying to create a Warsaw Pact. But what it is doing is a lot of other bad things. And it doesn't have to necessarily be a parallel. Like they are trying to take a lot of intellectual property from the United States, which steals, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of billions of dollars out of our out of this economy. Uh, there are reports now from the FBI in which they're claiming that China's trying to basically steal property, intellectual property from our, America's vaccine research in an effort to perhaps make the vaccine itself first, which could put it in an advantageous position down the line, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it doesn't need to have something so dramatic as like a Cuban Missile Crisis in order to show that it's in this perpetual state of conflict with the United States. Is, again, not to say that like... China is all bad, that it is, you know, there's some sort of like forever war, but it does seem like they're at each other's throats. And what makes, again, what worries me, and I think it's just important, so I'll keep repeating it, is like the way you don't really make this a cold war is you can sort of see a way out. You can see a a sort of pathway, but I don't see it. And if the coronavirus isn't going to bring that pathway, I don't know what will.
5: I agree with a lot of that. I don't necessarily agree with the framing of, of the United States. I think, you know, in the way that we have interacted with countries, we do expect things in return. I think the question is the things that we expect are very different. They're not necessarily monetary. They are things like loyalty and basing rights and uh, also a lot of times democratic reforms, counterterrorism, things like that. More generally, I think what we need to talk about, I think what's missing from the conversation is is what this means going forward, Right. And so, okay, so we're in this position now. Is there, you know, I think you were kind of getting to that, Alex. Is there a way out? Um, and, and what does this mean if there isn't? And what would it look like if there is? And I think one of the the benefits, I would say, of, uh, I don't think that's super controversial, of democracy is that le- our leadership changes, right? We can vote people in and out of office. We have had previous presidents try to pivot to Asia, right? That was... Barack Obama's thing. He never really managed to do it. Yeah, because uh, the Middle East kind of is a thing. There are other approaches, and there are other people who may take different approaches. You know, Alex, you were talking, you know, how Democrats in the U.S. are starting to sound a lot more hawkish on China, in particular in the wake of the coronavirus, and also, you know, an attempt to challenge Trump um, at the ballot box. But, you know, there's a, a lot of Talk when people, when analysts talk about China, it's just like, oh, they they look at everything at the, you know, they play the long game in this 10-year um, oh, and this ten-year plan, and
3: a lot of that is is vaguely. Yeah, racist. no,
5: yeah. So let uh, me just not uh, vaguely. Yeah. <laughs> so right. what I was going to say uh, was more or less that it fundamentally kind of misunderstands how China operates, and I think the the coronavirus situation in particular shows the lie of that framing, right? that china has radically altered its its uh, you know approach like alex you were talking about you know throwing this kind of full court press i think uh, one of the experts uh, who spoke to you called it um with you know this this rhetorical and this online you know rhetorical kind of push and spreading fake news and lies and all of this stuff um i think you've seen china you know scramble to have to react to, you know, china is just like any other country it has to react to events um i'm sure having a massive pandemic breakout in Wuhan was not in its 10-year plan, right? And everyone has to adapt to events. And, and you know, Xi Jinping may be in power for a long time, or he may not. You know, there there's you can predict it one way or the other. You can look at trends, but honestly, nobody knows. But we know for a fact that Donald Trump, will, in terms of democracy, uh, won't be in power forever. And so I think there are plenty of off-ramps for this. I think there are plenty of ways— That we can, you know, and I think not just that we can, that we will, because of the fact that the economic ties are so important. Um, I think we will see some retrenchment. I think there will be some movement to try to move manufacturing to other countries to diversify so we're not so reliant on China. You know, if not making manufacturing all come back to the US, which, you know, may not be possible, but definitely diversifying it so that we're not reliant on just one country. But I think the U.S.-China economic ties for for years and decades to come are going to make it so that we still have to work together in a way that the U.S. and the Soviet Union just fundamentally did not ever have to do.
3: So I'm going to say one last thing before before we close, which is that this conversation has been premised on the idea that— uh, there's like a trajectory for both countries that's obvious in the same regard, which is that the U.S. is on the decline geopolitically and China is on the rise. Uh, both of those assumptions seem plausible right now, but they may not turn out to be true. I'm not saying I'm certain okay. they won't, uh, but there is a lot of reason to believe that the foundations of American power are a bit stronger than they might seem, at least fundamentally. Our political system is the real weakness, as the Trump administration is currently exposing. But you know, in terms of structural advantages, the U.S. has tons of them, be it the world's best scientific establishment, strongest military, all those things down the line. On the flip side, China has a lot of unexamined weaknesses that we haven't talked about throughout this episode, uh, which include very, very serious internal legitimacy problems, growth numbers that are probably overstated, significant environmental problems, which are fueling dissent in the government, air pollution, obviously disease, as we're now now seeing, is, is a real concern in terms of the way that Chinese politics is set up. So we assume the Chinese government is stable because it looks really stable and has weathered a lot of shocks. We just don't know how long that will last for. Uh, And I'm not stating a definitive opinion one way or the other. I'm just saying that the coronavirus, if it's shown us anything, has shown us that world politics are really, really difficult to predict. And that lots of things can end up happening. And this this assumption of a straight line U.S.-China conflict in terms of number two challenging number one, it, it- strikes me as assuming a lot of facts that are not in evidence. And anyway, maybe we'll do a whole nother episode on whether or not China is really as strong as it seems. But for right now, this is where we need to leave it. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, uh, who had to listen through our rendition of All the Small Things. You all didn't. You're very lucky in that regard. Uh, And I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot, y'all, and talk to you next week.
0: Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots, but AI is more than a novelty, and it's possible that your business could benefit from AI integration. SAP Business AI can help your business innovate, whether it's supply chain, finance, human resources, sales and marketing, even a generative AI co-pilot. SAP Business AI can offer the solutions you've only dreamt of. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI.
1: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called Writer's Block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI.
2: Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction.
1: Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block.
2: Ask your boss if Canva Magic Right is right for you at canva.com, designed for work.